Hey guys, this is Steve. Episode, you ready for this? 101. We begin our second century of FCC May podcasts, and fittingly with Henry Schubert, who hasn't been around for a century, but he has worked for the city of Largo for almost a half a century, 43 years. We're going to talk about his longevity, how he's managed to navigate different commissions over his time. He spent the last seven years as a city manager, but really a good guy, uh, easy to listen to, has some really good insights into local government and how to manage and how to be a good manager. And for those of us who love listening to the ones about MIT's managers in transition and how to move through the system, this is kind of a good one because it's somebody who's been there over four decades. Henry Schubert, from Pinellas County in the city of Largo. And by the way, before you tune in, Google Largo on the maps. You're going to be impressed with how this city is shaped, how it is formed, and all the little different nooks and crannies of it. So join us on this 101st episode. Thanks. Greetings. I'm Steve Van Core, and this is the FCCMA Podcast, a service produced by and for the Florida City and County Management Association. I'm your host. Each episode, we interview a city or a county leader who's in the position to share interesting and useful insights into the operations of local government here in the Sunshine State. Now, if you have somebody you would like to nominate to be a guest on the show or you have questions, simply send them to me at svancore at vancorejones.com or you can just direct message uh, FCCMA on Facebook. Today's guest, uh, you know, we talk a lot on this show about turnover of city managers, uh, the managers in transition program, how important that is, because you have a, a career that is rife with turnover because, you know, the electeds turnover, they want to bring in a new administration. If there's a problem, you have to take the blame. All those reasons and how we deal with that. Well, today's guest is an exception to all that. Henry Schubert has been with the city of Largo in Pinellas County uh, since the turn of the century. Actually, actually, you have been since the turn of the century, right? Although actually 20 years before the turn of the century, uh, Henry started with the city of Largo, ready for this, in 1980. Now, this was the 1960s, and he had worked for GM or, or Ford for 43 years. You go, that's a pretty good career. That's pretty impressive. But it's really impressive. When you have somebody with a city for 43 straight years. Henry, what's your secret sauce? Well, I certainly didn't plan it this way. Um, you know, it's it, it, in some ways, it's, it, I've just been lucky because this is a, a great organization that I felt very comfortable in, a community I felt very comfortable with. Um, but I've, I've, I've also worked very hard to really be, again, dedicated to the community to provide good service. Um, um, I've been involved in a whole lot of things here over the years, obviously, and, um, it's all been, or at least most of it's been fun. Well, take, take us back to 1980. You, you didn't, you didn't start in the mailroom, but almost. Yeah. What I, um, titles were a little different back then, but, uh, uh, right out of graduate school and I, and I got my MPA USF, um, I, I was hired as a management analyst, uh, which was a position in the city manager's office. And my uh, primary focus was on uh, budget. And and then, so to, to walk us through where from there 
you know, and, and talk a little bit about the growth of the city. And by the way, folks, if you go, go to the Google and look at the city of Largo. Um, it is, in my estimation, a Rorschach inkblot test of cities. It is kind of a meandering, picks up this community there, picks up that community there, has a few non-contiguous uh, annexations as part of it. Uh, Henry, it's almost like they... All the all the non-areas that weren't part of a municipality, you guys kind of in central Pinellas, you guys kind of picked up. And now you're the third largest city in the area, right? Yes. I did I did not know that. Um, but you you've worked in a number of capacities. How did you move through those and, and what were some of the changes you experienced? Well, you know, just over the years, you know, again, I started out in budget and um that that position grew as as the city grew. Um I held various uh, titles over the years. I was an assistant to the city manager, um, spent a few years as uh, sort of a dual role of as an assistant to the city manager and city clerk. Um, so I got to take on a lot of special projects. Um, it was sort of a joke during that time that when there were vacancies in the organization, I ended up being the acting, whatever it was at the time. Um, I became assistant city manager uh, I was the assistant city manager for over 20 years. Um, for a good part of that time, I was the only assistant. And then at some point, there were there were two two assistant city managers in the organization. So um, I got to um, to manage a lot of large uh, construction projects, a lot of our our vertical uh, construction projects here in the city, which uh, our I myself and and the organization are very proud of. Um, so. I've sort of grown in the organization as the organization itself has grown and as the community has grown. And as you said, the community has grown considerably in, in the time I've been here. Yeah, I mean, when you when you were starting, I mean, St. Pete had a very dark history. The area, the region had a very dark history. Um, I would assume uh, Largo was part of a kind of a white flight bedroom community of St. Petersburg. And now all that, thankfully, is settled in. I think St. Pete is really one of the cooler cities now. Mm -hmm. And you guys are, you know, are you, are you adjacent to St. Pete? You're obviously proximate to it, but not not necessarily right adjacent, right? We we don't actually uh, touch borders, but uh, we're north of St. Petersburg and south of Clearwater. Yeah, so you're kind of kind of that in between, and with it with no city center, as it were, kind of an amalgam of of different suburbs uh, through through the area. So. Uh, before we get into the city and how it's like to manage a city of, of such uh, geographic and uh, ethnic diversities, what but to those getting into the profession, those starting out, a couple of tips on, you know, listen, we know uh, Jim Hansen said on this podcast, if you're a city manager, either have been fired or you're going to be fired. Clearly, Henry, you're the exception. But what pointers would you would you share with with those coming into the profession about how to navigate the shoals of changing, uh, changing community, changing uh, governments uh, throughout your tenure? Because clearly, you've successfully navigated all of those, and you can you can give me the line of BS while they've all been great. But we know there's been some ups and there's been some downs. So absolutely, how do you navigate these ups and how do you navigate the downs? Well, certainly, it was you know uh, I've been city manager for seven years, so. Um, you know, before you become city manager and, and you're at other levels in the organization, it's it's um, it's a lot easier. Mm -hmm. um, you're more Below on the, the radar. line when you're the, the city manager. Um, you know, I, I, I you know, uh, 
I think these are real basic things, but, you know, just trying to be professional in everything you do, always do the right thing. Um, hopefully people will understand that you are, are doing things for the, um, for the best of the community and for the organization and not necessarily for yourself, for your personal advancement. Um, and I can't overemphasize good, clear, honest communication. I, I, I think that's so important, uh, particularly when I've moved into the city manager role of, um, you know, in, in my, my private conversations with uh, our, our, our city commissioners and mayor, being very upfront with them on both the good things and the bad things that are happening. And, uh, you know, don't hide anything. Everything needs to be out there on the table and, and you just need to be honest and uh, take a team approach to working through things. So part A is having a servant's heart, which is, I think, mm -hmm. essential to being a good city manager. You know, we often talk on the show about it's not necessarily can you accomplish great things because you can, because you have a, a budget and a commission to supportive and a public that wants to see good things happen, but never taking credit for it. Always making sure the credit goes to others. Uh, I, I call being a city manager means to me means doing really cool and good things, but you're, you're in the back of the room when the ribbons being cut, not in the front of the, not, not up on the stage. Um, when you talk about communication to give us a, a few pointers on, cause I, I see three parts. Part one is communicating back and forth with the commission. The second part is communicating with your staff, let them know the clear goals. You know, they have the respect of you. And then communicating with the public. So let's let's unpack that. Give us a few pointers on communicating with the commission itself. Yeah, I think the, the most important thing uh, communicating with the commission itself is that I, I try to meet with each uh, member of the commission one-on-one -on -one, uh, once a week. Um, you know, sometimes that doesn't happen because the schedules on either part, either right. party's um, situation. But um, really having those those conversations, sitting down, uh, communicating information to them, and 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 maybe even more importantly than the actual information that I'm conveying is just getting to know them better, getting a, an understanding of where their heads are, so to speak. Um, because the better I can know them, the, the the better sense I have of what's acceptable to them. You know, what what are their boundaries on various issues? What do they want to accomplish here in the in the city? Um, I, I I think that's real that's real vital um, because because we're working as a team. Knowing what's in their heart and what 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 motivates them, and you know, and and you 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 said it naturally, but I want to emphasize this. This is not something you do via text. This is not something you do via email. This is human to human interaction, which I think for a lot of younger folks is a little more difficult because they're so used to the rapid fire pace of electronic communications that sometimes stopping, pausing, sitting across the desk or on the couch with somebody and having a, a, a human to human conversation, you get to know each other's heart and, and you're less likely, you know, we We've watched the breakdown in Congress and some ascribe it to the old days when Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan would get together and have a drink after work. And they got to know each other's hearts and the members of Congress got to know each other's hearts. And so they didn't ascribe ill will. Uh, the, the, the gap that occurs in social media, electronic media, other forms doesn't allow that. And we sometimes miss that. 
Yeah, I think I think uh, so many people do not understand the value of relationship building. That's absolutely right. So take me to staff. I mean, so that how many city council members do you have? Seven, including the mayor. So if you're if you're meeting, you're having seven meetings a week. I assume they're about a half hour each, sometimes shorter, sometimes longer. Yeah, uh, depending on the individual and what's going on that week, it could be anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes each. I mean, that's a that's a seven. If you if you look at a 40 hour work week, which laugh, go ahead. Yeah. You worked a 40 hour work week. Um, it was on my vacation. Um, uh, let's say a 50 hour work week. That's seven hours taken out of that. That's a that's a big commitment. Um, mm-hmm. What about communicating with staff? How does how, what, what are some of your thoughts about how you keep because clearly one of your one of your issues and we're going to get into this is creating a high performance organization. Clearly, part of that has to be um, uh, interactive communications. Well, one of the things that's really helped in that regard is we have a, a communications and engagement staff. Um, and that was one of my priorities when I became city manager was to upgrade that function. Uh, the person that leads that is at the executive level, so at the department director level here in our organization. And they're a really uh, talented group that really gives me a significant amount of, of assistance in that. A mm-hmm. um, couple things that we do specifically in uh, communicating with our employees is that uh, once a month, uh, this, the assistant city manager and I have a uh, breakfast with um, a small group of employees from a department, and we rotate through the departments every month. Nice. So that's an opportunity to sit down with five, six, seven people, get to know them, find out what's on their mind, um, do it in a very you know conversational way. Uh, the other thing we, we've been doing, uh, we started this during COVID. Uh, one of the things we learned during that experience, uh, uh, we do um, periodic uh, webinars with our employees. So um, during COVID, we did it, I think it was at least once a month. Now we're doing um, every other month. Sometimes we don't have anything, so we'll, we'll, we'll skip a, a month. But um, the idea is, is that we do about one hour and uh, employees have the opportunity to tune in. And um, that's an opportunity for me and other people on staff to convey information, update uh, our staff as to what's going on. And also take questions from from team members. So is this like a you do you have a webinar and it's and uh, it's one way it's it's a, hey we want you to hear about the new land use projects we've got going on or some of the challenges we got with our budget. So you pick a topic and then create a webinar and then everybody kind of tunes in. Mm-hmm. Yes, and and a lot of times we'll cover multiple topics as a way to kind of keep everybody informed. Yes, absolutely. Interesting. Interesting. So. The periodic meetings with folks, departments in person, which again I love. Then the webinars are like you know in in house educational things. You know, you touched on something that I've been pondering. <clears throat> you know, I remember when the communications department was never seen as C suite, never seen as top. But in, uh, lately, because of the um, deep penetration of social media, uh, things like Nextdoor. Um, obviously Facebook, Twitter, uh, other, other social media outlets, um, that the communication staff has, has become professionalized, uh, mm-hmm. that you can no longer say, Hey, we have a, uh, an intern down in the basement. Who's going to handle our social media that 
it's had to become professionalized. Even the, the Florida League of Cities has created an organization in the past few years, the Prof you know, Professional Communicators Association. Uh, I know they have a name that's more formal than that, but basically that's that's what it is. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like that's what you're experiencing. You've moved the communications department into the executive suite. Yes, and and I think it's important that as as we make decisions as we work through issues, that the um, the leader of the, of that group is is part of those uh, discussions, so they understand what's going on, they understand the background, uh, they're be better able to communicate it. Plus, also give in, invaluable input during the process. Um, you know, early in my career, one of the things I I did was was um, I was sort of the primary liaison between the, uh, the 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 city and and the news media, which at that time was primarily just, was just uh, daily newspapers. And you know it was a lot easier back then when you had um, you know one or two primary newspapers that everybody in the community. St. Petersburg Times and the Tampa Tribune. Yeah. Yes, and everybody everybody read the same papers, and the paper came out every day, and there was a reporter that came by City Hall every day looking for stories. Now. There's so many different ways that people get their information. Uh, it's gotten significantly more complicated. And, um, you know, obviously the newspapers aren't what they used to be. And in this media market, uh, the uh, television stations rarely cover us. Unless you've done something really dumb. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, you're right, because now, you know, you have about 40 percent of um, voters not reading at all, mm -hmm. not even subscribing, not reading their local newspapers. And but they're getting their information through national channels, through other other means uh, and not through the shared narrative of what's happening in the local community. Uh, and, and then by the time they get it, hey, a road widening project, uh, we're repairing the Courtney Campbell Bridge, blah, blah, blah. They're getting it through third party sources. They're getting it predigested through people with with. Uh, unregulated opinions and uh, sometimes misinformation. Do you find yes. a lot more of your uh, communication staff for external communications, not intern, is having to deal with a lot of uh, misinformation? You know, we're 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 I guess lucky here in our community. Um, some of that, but not not as much as a lot of other places. I know there's I hear of stories in a lot of communities where there's like active bloggers out there or whatever mm -hmm. that are you know. Um, spreading information that's not always accurate, shall we say, uh, about what's going on in the community. And we have very, very little of that. Oh, you're lucky. Yeah. Yeah, well, very lucky. Know, and Largo is kind of that, you're not clear, you're like you're, you're flanked on two sides by, you know, literally world famous cities, right? Clearwater, known for its, you know, incredible beaches uh, and the beach community there, which is actually kind of hip and cool. Uh, and then St. Petersburg to the south, which, you know, has a sporting team and, you know, all kinds of cool stuff. So maybe maybe you're you're fortunate in that you're this kind of suburb tucked in between. Um, well, I, I said there was two parts. A third part of communications is dealing with the community. How how do you guys what do you, what are you doing there to to because obviously you haven't had any uprisings. You had a pretty stable commission. Uh, what is the secret sauce on on how you communicate with the community? I don't know if there's any real secret sauce. I mean, we our our, our staff is very um, you know active on social media. Um, we also um, have various um, you know newsletter type things that go out periodically that that uh, to go out through emails. You know, we we you know we we're constantly trying to get more people on our email list. 
Um, you know, one of the things that, um, that, that comes out under my name is I have a, a weekly report that goes out. We call it Largo Today. comes out on Fridays. And um, I don't know exactly how many people we have to subscribe to it, but we got a fair number of people in the community that have signed up to receive that. And um, I, I sort of find it a little humorous sometimes when I'll, I'll bump into someone and they'll recognize who I am and they'll, they'll say, I really enjoy your, your uh, newsletter you put out every week. And, or, and I have to tell them, well, actually, I don't have much to do with that. <laughs> I, got, I got a staff that really does that, but uh, appreciate the, you know, the input. Well, and there you go, uh, not taking credit for it. You can say, oh, yeah, I'm awesome. You know, it's a, it's it's the instinctive part of being a good city manager mm-hmm. is to give credit to everybody else. Um, I think that's 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 part of that success. So, you know, at some level, Largo looks like a Jackson Pollock painting when you look at the the map of, of that. Um, that's kind of about got to be an interesting. Now, since you've always been immersed in it, maybe I'm asking the fish about the water here. But how do you deal with the diversity of geography within this community and the diversity of these communities, they, they clearly they have to have different needs and different expectations of the city, but you've navigated that through your entire career as Largo has annexed on. Uh, give us some pointers on, on, on navigating some of those shoals, dealing with those well, communities. Yeah. As, as I think everybody in Florida knows it's in this business, it's at the, uh, annexation laws aren't very friendly to to cities so um yes we have a um rather bizarre uh <laughs> map of the city if if you look at it uh we've been um a, a fairly aggressive at annexing properties over the years um you know one of the ironic things is is that we've had much more success annexing the uh more commercial and industrial you know business type areas than some of the residential um, so that leads to yeah this sort of Swiss cheese look of of our our city boundaries. Why, why is that? Why why I have a theory about why that might be, but you tell me why uh, commercial industrial versus residential. I think it's easier to sometimes offer some incentives to commercial and industrial, or um, in in some cases they find it it um, easier or friendlier to to deal with the city in a, in a, a development um situation rather than maybe working with uh with the county and and that's nothing against the county it's just that sometimes it's easier to deal with a, a smaller organization um uh, a, a lot of the residential you know homes have been there for years um uh in 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 some cases people don't see the immediate benefit of of annexing also uh there's there's some areas of this, uh, of the uh, unincorporated that we have not annexed because there's a lot of rental properties and 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 the um, the um, owners of the properties, you know, they're just they don't see the value and they're not particularly. Well, bottom line, yeah, I, that was going to be my theory, which is residents will oftentimes, if they're getting adequate service from whether the county or wherever, uh, they would only see the city as uh, a tax increase, right? Not yeah. necessarily also a service increase, uh, whether it's better policing, better waste management, whatever. Because that's why we form a city, right? We're not happy with the current level of service we're getting from the county for whatever reason. And, and again, and not a, not, a, not a thing on the county. They don't do certain things. And so, as Mike Siddig used to say, the city is the only voluntary government you have to be under. 
Yeah. If you choose to be on the continent of the United States, you're going to be part of the federal government. You can't escape that. You're going to be in a state. You can't escape that. Well, I guess if you're in D.C. or Puerto Rico, but <laughs> you're also going to be part of a county. You can right. choose whether or not you want to live within the city. And I would think that commercial folks would say, oh, better police protection. We get to tap into their wastewater treatment plant. We get to do this. We get to do that. And you're right. Permitting and other things can be closer to home and easier to deal with. So they see from an economic perspective the benefits of joining, whereas residents and rental properties are exception to the business because as a former owner of several rental properties, um, the bottom line is the bottom line. You're always yeah. looking at the bottom because it's a it's a close margin business. And so you're like, I don't, I don't need anything else. <laughs> so it makes sense. It makes sense. So let, I want to I want to shift gears a little bit to you as HBO, a uh, high performance organization. Uh, you guys are one of those. Tell us uh, why you felt that was important to be part of that and how that works, because I've had a couple folks on the show and I'm still not quite clear what some of the elements of that are. Um. You know, when when I when I became city manager seven years ago, and this may seem a bit odd since at that point I'd already worked for the city over 30 years, but but I, I really wanted to make some changes in the organization. I I, I knew that we needed to uh improve in, in certain areas. And and I believe real strongly that any living thing, whether it's an individual or an organization, needs to continue continually change, self-assess itself. We need to continue to be relevant to our, our community, to our current and, and future employees. Um, so the one of the one of the ways to do that is to really engage your workforce. You know, we we have employees who have um a lot of knowledge, they're very skilled at what they do. They um, um they 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 know a lot more about their jobs than I'm ever gonna know. Um they always knew that. Oh, wait, wait, I, 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 I got to tell you, I'm not buying that for a second because you've been there forty something years. You've, you've done everything from taking out the trash. Did you have you ever driven a trash truck? No. Okay, so we'll give it to the trash truck driver. He knows more. <laughs> he or she knows more about that than you do. But uh, you're a rare breed there, uh, Henry. But go on, continue about high performance. And I, I like to say the employees always knew. Those of us at the top didn't know everything, but we needed to have convince ourselves that we didn't know everything. Ah, and, that's actually pretty important. You're right. Yes. So so we need to rely on, on information coming on up through the organization and actually involving employees in decision-making. You know, part of the HPO uh, philosophy is, is that every person in the organization has um, leadership responsibilities. So, you know, maybe at my level, it's, you know, it's 80% leadership and maybe that Guy who's driving the, the the solid waste truck, maybe his is only five percent leadership, but 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 everyone has has a, a responsibility and a role in that, and we have really, to the extent possible, and this this is a work in progress. We're, we're certainly you, you're never going to be uh, hundred percent successful on this, but is 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 involving uh, uh, employees in decision making. So, for instance. Um, when we were looking at uh, re reviewing our, our employee benefits package uh, for our non-represented employees, um, you know, traditionally the HR director, the city manager, some other stop, top staff would get in a room, close the door, look at the, at the, at the benefit plan and, and decide on some changes to recommend, you know, to your, to your elected body. Well, maybe you need to ask the employees what's important to them. 
So what we did was, so in, in that kind of situation, we would actually create an, an employee group, individuals that were um, interested in participating on it, have them do some research and have them make some recommendations. Uh, part of that is setting up some guardrails. So, um, you know, if some things are off the table, you tell that to them up front. But well, that goes um, to your honest communications like, look, zero deductible yes. is not on, in the plan. Health savings accounts are off the table. But within those parameters, what would you like to say? You know, yes. I actually worked so on a project a good example like that. There. Go ahead. You give me an example and I'll give you one yeah. back. And, and a good example of that is we have a um, we have a. Um, 401A plan, it's outside of public safety, we have a 401A um, defined uh, contribution plan for, you know, for our employees for retirement. So one thing that was off the table was we're not going to have a defined contribution. We're not going to have a defined benefit, benefit plan. Yeah. pension plan. So, so don't even look at that. And they said, okay, we understand. Well, that that's, that's essential to good communications. It's just because if you open up a door, that's already you know is going to be closed. Why open it? And people are accepting of we we can't do it. We're not doing that. We're not. You're not getting a brand new iPhone. You're only eight. Um, and the kids go okay. Um, I remember doing a, a similar project for uh, an organization, and they had asked us to evaluate work with the employee. We did do a series of focus groups, um, uh, and what we found is it wasn't about deductibles. It wasn't about copays. It was about if you're changing the plan, the most important thing was, can I keep my doctor? Even yeah. if that means higher deductibles, higher co-pays. And that would have not been, and, and the accountants with the, with the sharpened pencils were trying to find ways to keep the costs in line. And what was more valuable to them was the ability to keep, especially the pediatricians. Uh, that was like, wow, if we can give me a program and a plan I'll accept the increase. I'll accept the higher deductibles. I'll accept the higher copays if I can make sure my kid gets to see his or her doctor. And that's what you get only when you ask people the question directly. Yes. And um, as, as I mentioned to one of our uh, uh, newly elected uh, city commissioners recently, I said in trying to, you know, convey more information on this philosophy, said, I'm not trying to be lazy. But the fewer decisions I have to make, the better. Choice architecture. That's exactly right. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read the book Nudge. It talks about choice architecture. The, no. So a really good example was when Obamacare first passed, the government put together a program. And when you logged in, it gave you all of the options in your community. And in many cases, it was 30 or 40 options. Mm -hmm. And the sign-up rate was very, very low. And so they brought in these choice architects and they said, which is, by the way, what a cool business card that is, right? Yeah. And said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to randomly give them a high, middle, and a low, one each, and they could pick. And, and everywhere they did that, enrollments shot through the roof because give me fewer decisions. Give me a high, give me a middle, give me a low. You walk in, you get, and the classic example is you give out, you know, 35 types of jam. Uh, cranberry raspberry mix, you know, orange marmalade mixed with, you know, grapefruit. You too many choices, nobody wants it. But you give me three choices or four choices, I'm like, okay, that sounds good. Blueberry, great, I'm in. So yeah, do, doing the same thing. We 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 follow that exact same philosophy in our 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 both our 401a, um, you know, defined contribution retirement plan and our 457b, um, a deferred comp plan is that. Um, you know, we have an employee retirement board and we made the decision a long time ago that we would have 
just what you're talking about, a limited number of choices within each type of investment category. Um, because you could just throw out, you know, a hundred mutual funds out to people and they go, Oh my God, what you know, this is just overwhelming. Yeah. So you need to you need to have good choices, but you and and it needs to be, you know, intentional as to why they were selected. But a a a a limited number of high quality choices is much easier for employees to navigate. And that's where expertise comes in, right? Because, you know, listen, I'm I'm going to depend on your expertise on making recommendations and giving mm-hmm. me some choice in the matter. But yeah, if you give me 300 different mutual funds and I start researching them, I'm going to be overwhelmed immediately. Yeah. And I will, and I'm not an expert. So the use, the usage of expertise to kind of narrow down the playing field and, and then giving me options is good. So what other elements? So what is, what is, High performance organization look like on a daily basis. Tell me, tell me a little bit about what makes a non-high performing organization versus a high perform. What are some of the elements that make that? You know, the the, the biggest thing is 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 employee engagement. That that the, the goal is to have, uh, and again, you're never going to hit 100 percent of your of your uh, team member base, but certainly um, have people engaged. So when they come to work, they're they're not here just for for a for a paycheck, although that's obviously very important. But 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 also to understand the the values, understand and live the values of the organization, and our vision and mission and goals, and um, be very participative. So I, I I think what it looks like on a on a on a daily basis is just more um, um, more decision making at lower levels of the organization. So that that doesn't mean that managers don't uh, don't um, still have responsibility and, and and still have a lot of work to do, but but it's more of a a um, uh, providing uh, um, guidance and mentoring to employees, uh, providing them the right training, and in, in providing them the tools they need to do their jobs, but uh, less less orders and and more maybe facilitation. Okay, so does that mean like I'm a manager of a department, the Parks and Recs department? Is it the manager is saying to the staff instead of, hey, we need to do this, you go do A, you go do B, you do go C, you present the problem and you say, what do you guys think? How do, mm-hmm. how, how would we solve this problem? We have, you know, two 5Ks, we don't have enough staff, but they're on different parts of the town this weekend, or we have a big giant baseball tournament coming and how do you guys think we should handle it? And, and that's something you train your management staff to say, Include them in the decision making process as a way to make sure they're bought in to the to the to the action. Exactly, and and again, we're at different places and different departments on that. Um, takes many years um, to to implement this type of thing because you're really you're you're really um, you're changing the culture of the organization. To be more inclusive of everybody from top down, it's not a yes. uh, from the bottom up. You know, a good example of that might be you talked about the person driving the tr- trash truck, right? And I don't even do you guys outsource or you do your own trash? But, no, we do our own. Okay, so there's a there's an ongoing issue with trash, which is the positioning of the cans, especially if you have those automatic trucks that send out the fork and lift mm-hmm. them up. And I, 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 because I've represented a number of cities and we've worked on trash issues, who hasn't, right? The most important issue in the community. Uh, people who just roll out the carts and face them the wrong way. It, the, you can solve that problem two ways, right? The, the person could jump out and turn it around. And then you have not fixed the ongoing problem. Or a, and I remember being in a project where the drivers suggested, why don't we create a little note? 
hey, I turned your can around, uh, but it would be quicker and easier. And the way it's supposed to be done is to turn it facing, you know, facing the street with a handle facing the house, putting a little note on there. And nobody had thought to do that. And it's a nice way to communicate and go back. And so you reduce the incident. But that mm-hmm. would come from the ground, right? That would come from the right. from the driver who's like, I, I, Mrs. Johnson's always got her trash can turned around the yeah. wrong way. And, you know, because another response could be, you don't pick it up. And then she's calling, she's mad, negative experience. Say, hey, we turned it around this time, but to make it, you know, trash pickup smoother and easier, please turn your can, you know, to the front. And I don't know, maybe after three times you say, okay, now we're not picking up your trash anymore. <laughs> but that would be what you're talking about, the leadership coming from the ground up. Yes. yes. Any, any other things that you've that you've implemented over the years to bring you uh, to a high-performance organization? That, that, that's it right now. We, we also have just started a, a, a data initiative to um, um, I, I think it's, you know, probably the next step in the HPO journey is is to um, be more intentional about uh, gathering data uh, regarding the performance of the organization, standardizing that data, um, ensuring that if, if you are collecting data, number one, it's meaningful, and number two, you're actually using it. Um, so so that that's that's something that we've just just started. Yeah, I, as somebody who owns a polling company, I'm uh, often impressed with, hey, here's what the data shows, here's what the public wants, here's what their needs are, and then people go about doing what they were going to do anyway. You're like, wait, wait, why did we gather the data if we're not going to react and understand what the data is showing us and then generate policies based on that? So in your time um, with the city, and what's kind of cool about your tenure, you've seen, we often talk about being a city manager in addition to having a servant's heart and not taking credit. You're often only staged on big projects, right? You were there for the beginning. You were there for the middle. You, you, you were at the ribbon cutting to open something, a big project, a big town center, a big city hall. Uh, you've got to see in your tenure the beginning, middle, and end of a lot of projects. But now you're about to embark. You're getting ready to retire soon, am I right? Yes. When do you retire? June 30th. June 30th. What we got to do is we got to come back after June 30th, and you have nothing to lose, and you're going to tell us all the all the dark secrets uh, after you're no longer a manager. Actually, <laughs> that was a recommendation I got uh, on the pod. You know, we asked for recommendations was talk to some of these formers and give us some of the dirt. I'm like, I don't think they're going to want to do that. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't have much dirt to share. <laughs> yeah, well, when you run a good organization and you're a part of a good organization, that's kind of a nice thing to say, right? Um, yes. But the you're getting ready. You've just completed the design of a, kind of a new city government center. So you're finally in in your career. You're going to watch something start, and it might be, gosh, I would guess a decade before it's finally completed. No, it, it'll be it'll be completed in about eighteen months from now. Oh, okay. But um, yeah, so that that you know that is a you know a little disappointing, but it, you know I, w- I wasn't going to just extend my career to finish a project. Um, the the design is completed, the um, a construction is underway. There's still uh, you know a fair amount of decisions to make, but we have a we have a good team working on it. Uh, it's it's a fairly unique project for a city in that we're building a. Um, it's it's a complex that includes uh, eighty thousand square foot city hall, a um, little over eighteen thousand square feet of ground floor uh, retail space, and a uh, parking garage of about 
350 spaces and outdoor activity space. So it, it truly is a, a multi-purpose, a, a mixed-use project. Um, we actually are, it's, it's on uh, West Bay Drive in, in our small downtown area. So we actually have uh, given it a name. It, the name is Horizon West Bay. Um, and uh, with the theory that uh, City Hall is just one of the tenants that's, that's included in, in that project. You know, what I love about that is we went through a period uh, in the probably the 70s and the 80s. And, and we get, we saw a little bit of a uh, you know, still still percolating with not where government is afraid to do great things, um, mm-hmm. to build good buildings to build. You know, we had a the first district court of appeals building built here in Tallahassee. Now, it should have been built in town town is my uh, yeah. humble opinion, not so humble as it were. We built a way on the outskirts, which was kind of silly, but it's a beautiful building. It's it's and it and it and it shows the respect that we should have for our, our criminal and civil justice system and our appellate system. And so, but they were they were roundly attacked. Called it the Taj Mahal, blah 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 blah. I'm like, why are we afraid to build great buildings anymore? You know, people forget one of the most beautiful fountains in the world, uh, to the Trevi Fountain in Italy, is on the back of a post office. And it's a government building and it stands as, you know, an economic hub uh, uh, in the city. And it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. And it's clearly stood the test of time. You seem to be of the Steve Vancore philosophy that we can and should do great things. Oh, absolutely. Um, And um, roughly 20 years ago now here in the city, we were building, designing a, a new library and as the city commission at that point made the decision that they they didn't want a typical government building. They wanted something of high quality and some architectural significance. And we've we've carried that through on on every public facing project since then. Um, yeah, we've uh, I, I feel very strongly, as, as does the city, that, um, yeah, that, that, that um, government buildings should have a, a certain degree of attractiveness to them. Uh, they, 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 they shouldn't be, um, they shouldn't be boring. Um, you know, a a public building is a work of art, so not everyone's always going to like it, but, um, but that's okay. Uh, one of the, uh, very strong philosophies we have, well, a couple right now is we're really into resiliency and, 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 you know, energy efficiency and and Mm -hmm. all those type of things. And also, um, you know, one thing that sets us apart, I think, from the private sector is a lot of private developers, they will build an office building, for instance. And their intent is, is that, you know, two, three, four, five years down, down the road, once it's fully leased out, they're probably going to sell it. Right. They're going to sell it to another investor and move on. When we build a building, we most likely will occupy it for its entire life. And that gives you an entirely different perspective as to how you build a building. When you when you you know you go out to dinner, and you buy dinner for you and your spouse or significant other, and you spend eighty nine dollars for one shot, and you're done, right? You maybe have a glass of wine, maybe split a dessert, but you're spending about a hundred bucks. And then you go, mm-hmm. okay, let's go into the mall. We're going to buy some clothing, and you see two shirts. One fits you perfectly. It's a high quality shirt and it costs a hundred bucks. The other one costs $60 because it's on sale, but it doesn't quite fit you. And our instinct is to buy the cheaper shirt. Yet when you put capital expenditures on the same thing as your variable expenditures, your spontaneous expenditures, 
it makes no sense. You're going to wear that shirt maybe 50 times, maybe more. And yeah. it's a much better investment to buy a quality shirt. And likewise with buildings, that building in theory will be occupied and running for 30, 40, 50 years yeah. and making a good upfront investment in it. In the, in, in the end, especially if it's built resiliently, will save you money, uh, beautify your city and have higher customer satisfaction. Because at the end of the day, that old saying, you know, you forget what you paid long after the, you know, the, the, the poor taste of what it was at the good taste of a low price fades quicker than the, the bitterness of a poor product. And it sounds like you've been yeah. forward thinking in that through, throughout your career. Yes, absolutely. Well, what's next for Henry Schubert? Well, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, uh, as, as, as we said, on, you've together. been a planner your whole life. Now you, you can't <laughs> do what all these other city managers do plan the world. But when it comes to your own retirement, you haven't come up with a plan. That's right. Haven't haven't completely come up with the plan. As as we said a few minutes ago, I'm gonna I'm gonna be retiring effective June 30th. And um yeah, I don't know. I'm gonna take it from there. I'm gonna figure it out. Um obviously uh I I I am not just gonna sit around and do nothing. Uh, my wife and I will will clearly be doing some traveling and whatever, but uh, you know, you can't travel all the time. So so I'll, I'm sure I'm gonna find other things to keep myself busy, but and you don't have any specific plans yet. And you're gonna uh, you're gonna stay in Largo. Yes, yes, I plan on staying in Largo. Well, I would encourage you because of your knowledge, your expertise, your longevity. I hope you stay active with FCCMA. Uh, the senior advisor roles are uh, in, in desperate need because it's an important thing for for people in the profession to hear from people like Henry Schubert. Thank well, Henry, you. thank you so much for being on today. I really appreciate it. It's been very informative. Uh, I love the high performance organization stuff because I, I'm a big believer in cities. And I know uh, you've got to do really good work. And, and you're you're a little hamstrung because unlike if a, a private business, I have more flexibility to give raises, to hire and fire. Mm-hmm. In a city, some of those are, are a little more difficult. And yes. What you've said about communication, engagement, respect up and down the ladder is what creates a high performance organization. Mm. Yes. Well, well, Henry, thank you so much. Folks, this is Steve Van Core, and this is the FCCMA podcast, a service produced by and for the Florida City and County Management Association. If you have a question you would like to submit or a future guest you'd like to suggest, please send me an email at svancore at vancorejones.com. Thank you so much for being with us.